Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I've often thought what a blessing it is that God does not disclose to us what will happen in the future. I don't mean to suggest that the future is prescripted and that it's unalterably fixed so that uh, things can't change, but the very fact that God knows the future, that doesn't mean that he has predestinated everything that happens in the future, but he certainly is omniscient. He knows it all. And though the future as a whole is unknown to us this morning, yet we do know a few things about the future. And this morning, I want to speak about the last things as we return to our study in Hebrews chapter 9, looking at verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. These two verses talk about things that will happen in the future. Death is coming for each one of us, as it is appointed unto men once to die. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Brother Goins, I don't like to think about that. I understand. But it's a reality nonetheless, isn't it? I've had people who are unfamiliar with primitive Baptist culture who've attended our church a little bit ask me the question before. Let me ask you a question. I don't mean any disrespect, but uh, why do you sing so many songs about dying <laughs> and about death? Why do you preach about death? I'm interested in living, not dying. I say, I understand. Me too. But you see, we have a gospel that deals with the ultimate reality, right? And we could bury our head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend that this cemetery does not exist out here. The very fact that it is positioned next to our house of worship reminds us that the gospel we preach deals in the world of reality. This is not a pipe dream. We're not escaping from reality. We're dealing with real life issues. And the fact is that death is coming in each of our lives. What's in store for your future? Well, we know this much, <laughs> that if Jesus tarries before I breathe my last, I will return to the dust from whence I was taken. Death is coming. You say, Brother Goins, that's a it's pretty morbid, bad news. Well, I've got worse news. As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. That's even worse news. In other words, in your future and in mine, not only do we face potential death, but there will come a day, my friends, when we will stand before God the judge at the last and general judgment. Judgment day is coming. It's coming for every human being. That's in our future. Now we might say that the bad news here form two bookends of human history. Think of that image of bookends. When I went to Africa some years ago, one of the memoirs that I brought back was a soapstone 
sculpture of the lion's head and the lion's tail. The first half, the back half of the lion, and they were made into bookends. Very nice piece of artistry, and it's one of my prized possessions. I always put it on my shelf with my favorite books, hardbound copies between them, two bookends. Well, here are two bookends of human history. God appointed man to die in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember? Genesis 2.16, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God made that appointment. He said, Adam, if you disobey me, then death will be the result. And that's why all kinds of death happen in our world. That's the front end of the bracket of human history, the first bookend. What about the end of human history? After death comes what? After this, the judgment. But there's something that has happened between the brackets in human history that will have ultimate future benefit to us so that we don't have to fear either death or judgment. Read the next verse, Hebrews 9, 28. As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. I dare say in that expression we have the remedy both for death and judgment. Christ was once offered to be the sin bearer, to take our judgment that was due to us as our substitute. And unto them that look for him, here's something else that will happen in the future. Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? Now, this language in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 is framed in the context of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We know, don't we, based on our past studies, that that's the dominant theme in this section of Hebrews. In fact, it's the dominant theme of the entire epistle. And we've been developing it at some length in chapters 8 to 9 and 10, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And this has to do with the aspect of the priesthood of Christ in which the priest returns after the sacrifice has been made. You may remember that the subject matter under consideration in this ninth chapter has been uh, the Day of Atonement. The apostle has been reminding his readers of that familiar scene in Jewish worship in which the uh, high priest would go alone into the Holy of Holies. He would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then he would take that blood into the Holy of Holies as the people waited on the outside for him to reappear. That's the imagery behind the apostles' treatment of this subject in the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Just as that priest was obscured from the public when he went behind that veil into the most holy place, so Jesus Christ is now hidden from our view. He's entered into the true holy place, heaven itself, he says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 26 says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus 
was the substitutionary offering. You know, the thing that's amazing about the work of Christ on the cross, he's not only the priest that made the offering, he was the lamb that was offered, right? He was the sacrifice that was made. He's both the priest that made the offering and the offering that was made. And what was the offering that he made? He sacrificed himself. Isn't that interesting? God did not merely give us one of the angels or patriarchs or prophets. He didn't send Abraham to be your sin offering. He didn't sacrifice Michael the archangel or Gabriel. The Son of God himself laid his own life down voluntarily. He sacrificed himself. He is the Lamb of God. Remember, that's what John the Baptist called him in John 1.29 when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And that figure, a metaphor, reminded everyone that stood by that day of the Old Testament lambs, the sacrifices that had been offered for the people's sake, which were all types and figures of the Lamb of God that was to come. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that was instituted under the Old Testament. Every innocent animal that was slain pointed forward across the centuries to the holy, harmless, undefiled, and spotless Lamb of God who didn't deserve to die, but yet for sinners like us, He took our place and sacrificed Himself. He laid His own life down for you and for me. Isn't that good news, my friends? It's sad news, you say. Yes, indeed, it's sad that He had to die, but you see, the holiness of God demanded death. And Jesus Christ, the great high priest, made sacrifice. You know, but a priest not only makes sacrifice, he makes intercession. And it says he's now gone into the Holy of Holies for us, ever living to make intercession for us. Where is Jesus Christ right now? He's in the presence of the Father at his right hand, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. What is he doing right now? He is praying for you and for me, pleading our call. Our Lord Jesus Christ is on the job right now. You have a lawyer in heaven, and he's always on the job, and he doesn't charge a dime for his services. He's never too busy to take your case before the judge of all the earth. And the fact is, he's the judge's own son. <laughs> and if you had an attorney who was the judge's own son, wouldn't you think that you would have assurance that your case would be heard and that justice would be served? I'm telling you, dear friends, we have an advocate with the Father this morning, and he's Jesus Christ the righteous. And because he's there, we don't have to be ashamed or worried over our sins. We don't have to worry about our future. Jesus is there for us. He's there on your behalf and mine this morning. That's why John chapter 17 is such a precious chapter to me in the Bible. I've often said if I was deserted on a, an island alone and I had no other person and access to no other information except one book in the world, I would choose the Bible. And if I could have only one chapter out of that book, I personally would choose John 17 because it's a full gospel. John 17 is the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ shortly before he went to the cross. And what we have here basically is a preview of coming attractions. As Jesus is showing them what he will do when he's no longer with them. He's giving them an object lesson of the kind of ministry he would continue to fulfill on their behalf 
once he has gone from them and ascended back to heaven, as if they are asking the question, Lord, if you're leaving us, what will you be doing while you're gone? And he says, I will be doing precisely for you then what I'm doing right now in your presence, praying for you to the Father. John 17 is the high priestly intercessory prayer of Jesus. And he prays for their salvation. He prays for their safety and sanctification. And he prays for their final glorification. He prays for their past, their present, and their future. Jesus is concerned about your eternal life. He's concerned about your life right now. And he's concerned about your future glory. And my friends, all of those subjects are matters of his intercessory ministry in the presence of the Father right now. What I'm saying to you is, I don't know if you've got the point yet, you have a friend in heaven. You have an advocate. You have somebody who's pleading your cause. You ever feel like you can't get somebody to listen to you, that you need somebody of importance to uh, stand up and to get the ear of the mayor or the governor or your representative? You ever feel like you can't get through? I'm telling you, dear friend, you can get through to the creator of the universe because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, the high priest under the Old Testament was the intercessor for the nation. He represented the people to God. And his intercessory ministry was symbolized by the very garments that he wore. You'll notice in Exodus 28 a very elaborate description of how the priests were to be clothed. They were to wear a divinely prescribed kind of clothing, and it's very elaborate in Exodus 28. On the shoulder pieces of the ephod that the priest put on as part of his uniform, his holy garments, were two onyx stones, stones of remembrance, because Aaron bore the names of the children of Israel before the Lord upon his shoulders for remembrance. On those onyx stones were engraven the names of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. He represented all the covenant people of God as he appeared before God. That's what Jesus does for us in his intercessory ministry. And then on those two shoulder pieces of the ephod, attached to those was a breastplate. And on the breastplate were set another 12 precious stones in four rows of three, engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben and Gad and Dan and Asher and Simeon and Judah and so forth. And they were born upon the high priest's heart as he appeared before God. May I say what a beautiful picture, even in the holy garments, the beautiful garments that the priest wore, what a beautiful picture of the intercessory ministry of Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, my friends, ever lives to make intercession for us. He's doing for you what he did for Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, when he said, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Aren't you glad Jesus is praying for you today? Now, I always like to get a card in the mail when somebody says, I'm praying for you, Brother Goins. It always touches me that they would think about somebody like me. But you know, as precious as that thought is, how much more precious is the thought that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is praying for you as your heavenly intercessor before the Father right now. So the priest made sacrifice, the priest made intercession. Finally, as we look this morning, the priest after he had been behind the veil, returned, made a public appearance, 
And that's the thought in our text when he says, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. He's coming back. The high priest will come back from the sanctum sanctorum. From that innermost sanctuary, he will make a reappearance. He's coming the second time. This time, though, without sin, because sin's been put away. Sin's been dealt with. Unto salvation. And that certainly speaks in a final and ultimate sense of the salvation that is awaiting us when we will be saved even from the very presence of sin. Now this morning, I have bad news and I have good news. You ever heard somebody say that? They come to you and they say, I have good news and bad news. Which do you want first? You know, that would be an interesting psychological study as to, you know, what kind of people want the good news first and then the bad news after, and what kind of people want the bad news first. I think that'd be interesting to figure that out, you know, because some people say, I want the good news first. Other people say, give me the bad news first. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this passage today, gives us the bad news first. And what's the bad news? And I have bad news this morning, but I also have some good news. Here's the bad news. Death is coming, and judgment follows death. That's bad news. But I also have some good news. Now let's look at these two bookends of human history, and then we'll look at the two bookends of the gospel message. And the gospel is bracketed not by death and judgment. The gospel is bracketed by the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You see, those are the bookends of the good news. And by the way, your New Testament is bracketed by the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, Jesus came as a little babe in Bethlehem's manger. Revelation 22, behold, I come quickly. He's coming the second time. And by the way, even the New Covenant era in which we live, when Jesus went back to heaven, he went back with the promise that the same Jesus which is gone from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And in Revelation 22:21, at the conclusion again of redemptive history, it says, Behold, I come quickly. So I've got some bad news first, though. We have an appointment with death. That's the bad news. I've already quoted Genesis 2.16. Paul gives us the theological spin on that in Romans 5.12. Here's a verse that I memorized very early in my Christian journey. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Who's that one man? Adam. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Because of sin... Death is the result. The wages of sin is what? Death. And again, whether you want to think about physical or corporeal death, when our bodies die, or you want to think about death to relationships, or death to the fellowship of the church, or death to fellowship with God, or death in the final sense, eternal death. Here's what I'm telling you this morning. Death is coming in each of our lives, and it's already there in a sense, because spiritually speaking, we are born to this world dead in trespasses and in sins. Wherefore, is by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men. What does that mean? It means that because of our federal head, Adam's failure, 
Each one of us are born into this world with a natural proclivity or tendency towards sin, and death will be the result physically, and death is the result spiritually. We have a dead heart so far as our relationship with God is concerned by nature. Did you know if you have a heart that's alive to God today, if you have any feelings, any emotions in your soul that are godly and interested in spiritual things, that's an evidence that you are alive in Jesus Christ because by nature we are dead in trespasses and in sins, Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened, Paul says, who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And by the way, you can't conjugate that verb dead. There's no such thing as dead, deader, and deadest. Somebody says, um, well, he's dead, but he's a little deader than he is. And this is the deadest of the bunch. I'm telling you, you're either dead or alive, right? There's, there are no degrees in death. And by nature, man is not sick. He's not wounded and maimed and bruised and mangled by the fall. He's ruined and devastated by the fall. When Adam sinned, my beloved, we're all spiritually incapacitated, morally unable to recover ourselves by an act of our own will or our own works. We are unresponsive to stimuli. That's what death pictures, right? If you speak to a loved one that has passed on and you say, I just want to speak to you. I want to visit your gravesite and I want to talk to you. I dare say that that may be very therapeutic for you and I don't see anything wrong with that, but you don't expect them to speak back, do you? Because they're unresponsive to external stimulus. And by nature, we could preach to an unregenerate man. We could talk to the dead sinner. We could try to reason with him and argue with him and read the Bible to him. But I'll tell you, it will never register. He will never respond in a spiritual way to it. Because, my friends, he doesn't have the capacity he doesn't have the ability to respond until he's given spiritual life. Now, the fact is, every one of us, probably sooner than we want to think about, is headed for the burial plot because we have an appointment with death. You say, Brother Goins, why don't we call it a celebration of life instead of a funeral? Okay, well, if that's what you want to call it, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's possible and appropriate to celebrate the lives of those that have passed on. But you know, regardless, we still need to face the ultimate reality. Death hurts. It's painful. It was meant to be painful. The Bible talks about the sting of death. The sting, like a bee sting. It hurts. It smarts. It leaves scars. It's mind-blowing to think that this person was here just a few minutes ago and now they're gone. It's just mind-boggling. You say it's insanity. I just don't understand it. But you see, it's the wages. It's the result of sin's presence in this world. And it's the ultimate reality as far as this world is concerned. We're all headed for the grave. And you know, I'm getting there faster than I thought I would. I thought it was a long ways off, but... Uh, one morning I woke up and, and suddenly I'm having aches and pains I didn't expect. And my brain doesn't work as well as it used to. And my voice is not nearly, man, you should have heard me a long time ago. <laughs> and you should have seen me back in my heyday. Isn't that our story? I used to be. I once was. 
The fact is, my beloved, death is coming. But you know, you say, Brother Goins, why do we need to even think about this? Because the Christian, again, deals in ultimate reality, and here's the way the Christian looks at death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's surprising. The world at large doesn't understand that. The reason that's true, I'll tell you in just a minute, is because of the other bookends in this passage, the two comings of Jesus, you see. But if we just look at human history without thinking of what Jesus has come to do on the cross for us, we know that death is coming, and after this, the judgment. Now, Paul has already made reference in the sixth chapter of Hebrews to the judgment day. He said, let us move on from the doctrine of repentance from dead works, the faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. As Old Testament Jews, which many of these people were before they were converted to the gospel in the book of Hebrews, they were familiar with the theology that God will call all men to an account one day at the last and final judgment. Judgment day is coming someday. They knew that. They knew that based on verses like Psalm 1-5, where the psalmist David says, But the ungodly are not so, for they are like the chaff that the wind taketh and driveth away. And he says, The ungodly shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Did they believe there was a day of judgment? Absolutely. Psalm 1 verse 5, written 1,000 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. So they looked for a judgment, a final judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, the wise man Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God shall bring every work into judgment together with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Yes, my friends, even the Jews understood that a final judgment day is coming. Not only the Jews, but the apostle Paul, when he preached at Mars Hill, introduced this subject to the secular thinkers among the Greeks when he said, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, and he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. That is, you can be sure judgment will happen because the judge has been resurrected. And it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment, some of them scoffed and mocked, but yet Paul didn't pull his punches. He said, judgment day is coming someday. You say, Brother Mike, you mean I have to answer to God for my sins? Not exactly. Judgment day is coming. And you will be there. And I'll be there. But the fact is, dear friends, judgment day has really already happened. In my case and in yours. In the case of all of God's elect when Jesus was judged in our stead as our substitute. See, look at the text again that we took this morning. As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So, now I love that little monosyllable, so. What does the word S-O mean in Hebrews 9, 28? So Christ was once offered. It means because death and judgment are a reality in your future and in mine, that is the very reason that Jesus was once offered. The word so means that's the reason. Doesn't it? So Christ. If I were to say, because my daughter 
will be married one day, so I laid some money back for her wedding. You understand, don't you, that the reason that I laid money back was because I anticipated that her marriage date was coming, right? And if the apostle were to say that because judgment day is coming, so Christ was once offered, he means that this is the remedy. This is God's resolution to the dilemma of appearing before God. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins. Instead of you having to bear your sins, Christ was offered to bear your sins. In fact, the sins of many, our text says. You say, how many? Well, as many as the Father had given him. That's John 17 too, right? He gave eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. Everyone that was given to the Son by the Father and the covenant of redemption before time began, Jesus Christ gave them, each and every one, eternal life. How did he do it? By being made a curse for us. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Not his own sins, but your sins and mine. That's the thought here. So the bad news is judgment is coming. Death is coming. Those are the bookends of human history. But here are two other bookends that bracket the gospel message. And it's the first coming of Christ to put away our sins and the second coming of Christ. And these are the brackets of the good news. That's what gospel means, by the way. The word gospel means what? Good news. Euangelion is the Greek word. And we get our word evangel or evangelism an evangel, a euangelion, angel. Do you see the word angel in that? An angel's a messenger. And it's a good message, good news. The best angelic message that we've ever heard didn't come from Michael or Gabriel or any of the other angels. But it came, my friends, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the messenger of the everlasting covenant, according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And the message is simply this, that Jesus Christ is God's provision for his people to bear their death and to bear their judgment so that they'll never die and they'll never be judged in this sense, for he was judged and he died in our room instead. That's the good news. So in his first coming, Christ dealt both with death and judgment at the cross, and he secured our safety from final judgment by means of substitution. What I'm saying this morning is the judgment of those for whom Christ died has already taken place. Court date has already happened in your case. The verdict has been issued, the sentence has been executed, and court has been adjourned forever. There's no appellate court. That case cannot be run up the ladder to Supreme Court, for Supreme Court has already heard it. They were already in session. You see, that's what was happening at the cross. You know what the cross was? It was court. Court date. God was adjudicating the most serious issue in time or eternity. He was hearing the case for your eternal condemnation and my eternal condemnation. But Jesus Christ came and paid the price to redeem us, to atone for our sins. And therefore, instead of being condemned, we are justified. By the way, those are two opposite terms. Condemnation, justification. Those are antonyms in the Bible. Condemnation means that the verdict of guilty as charged is issued. Justification means that a verdict of righteous is issued. 
in your case and in mine, you know what God sees on the dockets of heaven? So far as your guilt or innocence is concerned, he doesn't see Michael Goins as guilty of the first sin. He sees me white as the driven snow. Righteous as Jesus is righteous because Jesus took my place. He bore my punishment and his imputed righteousness, his righteousness has been imputed or credited to my account. That's precisely what 2 Corinthians 5.21 means when he says, For God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That verse means literally that Jesus was treated as if he had lived my life so that I might be treated as if I'd lived his perfect and spotless life. He took my sins. He's given me freely by his grace his perfect righteousness. Romans 5.19 says it like this, By one man's obedience many are made righteous. And therefore, case closed. Your case has been closed. You say, Brother Mike, what will happen at the last and general judgment? The grand assize, as the old writers used to call it. You know, there's a hymn we sing sometimes. I think it's uh, for him who did salvation bring. That's the way it starts. The last verse in that hymn says, the grand assize is come. That means this is the court date to obscure every other court date. This is Supreme Court. What is Supreme Court? The buck stops there, correct? The local court, the county court, the state court, the appellate courts, the civil courts, the criminal courts, they're all subordinate courts to what those nine justices conclude in uh, the Supreme Court. It's called Supreme for a reason. It's the ultimate court. And there is no chance of hearing the case after that. I'm telling you, Supreme Court. Now, you, you may come up with a decision, a verdict about your case in your own conscience and mind. You may say, I'm not a good person. Maybe you've done something and you feel guilty over it. And you think, ah, I can't be a child of God. And you've adjudicated your case. You feel your guilt and you feel your unworthiness and you say there's no way I could be a child of God I'm not righteous I'm far from righteous that's what the publican was doing when he prayed that day in Luke 18 he smote upon his breast he said God be merciful to me the sinner it's what Paul meant when he said oh wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from the body of this death that's what uh, many a child of God has felt when he would say things like, out in this cold world, away from God, no signs of where man, uh, with broken heart, I tried to pray that God would take my sins away. You've been there perhaps. And you say, Brother Mike, I've come to a decision in my case. I'm condemned. Here's good news for you. First John chapter 3, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. There's a court that is higher than the court of conscience. What about the court of public opinion? Okay, you say, what really matters is not what you think about yourself. What really matters is what does the world say about you? And when my neighbor and the old boys down from the plant and kids I went to school with report on Michael Goins, you'll get a number of different issues. Somebody will say, well, he's a pretty good guy, but I remember him when he wasn't so good. Or somebody might say, he is a scoundrel and a rascal. You know, public opinion varies. It's like a taking a poll, right? And it's all over the map. Public opinion about Jesus even vacillated from one person to the next. Jesus said, whom do men say 
that I, the son of man, am. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elias. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he came to the real question, but whom say ye that I am? That's what matters. But you see, public opinion is all over the map. You say, what really matters is what is my reputation? What does the world say about Michael Goins? I'm telling you, that court doesn't have the last word either. Conscience doesn't have the last word. What you think about yourself, public opinion doesn't have the last word. What other people say about your case. Some may say he's righteous. Some may say he's a sinner. You know what court finally and ultimately matters? Not what you think about yourself, not what the world says about you. What really matters is what does God say about you? You say, well, how can I know what God thinks about me? Listen to the gospel, for that's God's report. It's his good news. It's the court reporter or the public service person who comes out and announces the verdict that the justices have made. That's what I am this morning. I'm not playing a role in adjudicating the justice. I'm here just as a court reporter. A gospel minister is reporting the fact that your case has already been settled when Jesus Christ died on the cross and the case is closed. And therefore, when we come to the last day, Matthew 25, 31 says, when all nations appear before him, he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And he will say to the ones on his right hand, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to the goats on the left hand, Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I never knew you. And you see, these will be judged and sentenced to eternal ruin because of their sins. And these will be rescued and saved to eternal life because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace, we're condemned by our own works. My friends, if salvation depends on your works or mine, every one of us would have been condemned. But God in his mercy has made a provision to rescue a vast host of fallen humanity who were headed for eternal ruin. And he has lifted them as beggars from the dunghill. He's lifted them from the miry clay and fashioned them as vessels of mercy, prepared unto glory. That's what we are today. We'll be in heaven, my friends, not because we're good, but because of what Jesus did for us. Is that good news? That's the best news this sinner's ever heard. You say, well, Brother Goins, what about the judgment seat of Christ? Doesn't the New Testament say we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? That we may receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil? Isn't Paul talking to believers when he says that? Yes, indeed. How do we reconcile that? By understanding judgment seat of Christ is a special Greek word, bima. And it's different from the ultimate court, the great white throne judgment. There's a difference in the Bema seat and the great white throne judgment, just as there would be a difference between appearing before the elders of the city to be judged on a private matter and appearing before the king to be judged finally and capitally and ultimately, you see. There's a difference in the Bema seat. The Bema seat has to do with these lower courts. Daily Did you know the Lord holds each one of us accountable for our thoughts and actions and attitudes each day? Not only each day do we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I think that churches are judged by Christ. Not just individuals, but churches. 
That's what you see in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia, when Christ is censuring some of these churches for what they've done wrong and commending them for what they've done right. He's passing judgment, isn't he? We're accountable. That's the point. Each one of us is accountable to the Lord for how we live, for our attitudes. He's going to call Michael Goins to an account for whether he's been slothful and lazy with his gift of ministry or with his charge to pastor a church. He's going to call me to an account and make his pleasure or his displeasure known. And he is going to call each one of us to an account. But my friends, as far as your appearance before the Supreme Court is concerned, that judgment has already been meted out on Jesus Christ. You say, well, but won't I be there? Yes, you'll be there, but you will be declared righteous. It will not be an executive judgment. He will not execute justice upon you, for justice has already been executed on Jesus Christ, but then he will declare that you are righteous. In other words, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. You remember in the Old Testament, the night of the Passover, God told the children of Israel to slay a lamb and to take the blood of the Paschal lamb and apply it to the doorposts of their homes. I think it's significant he didn't say nail a copy of the Ten Commandments to the doorposts of your homes. When I see the law, I'll pass over. It's not the law that rescues us. He said, slay the animal and put the blood of the lamb. And when I see the blood, you will be spared from judgment. My beloved, you and I will be spared from judgment one day because Jesus was not spared from judgment in our place. Therefore, unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The greatest prospect on the future horizon for the church, for the believer, is that the one who came the first time to deal with our death and to deal with our judgment is coming the second time, returning from the sanctum sanctorum, the Holy of Holies, and he's coming out not clothed with our guilt, but he's coming back the second time, my friends, this time without sin unto salvation. He's coming to take us home. And the second coming of Jesus Christ is glorious news, isn't it? That's a wonderful prospect. What's in store for your future? You say death and judgment, Brother Mike. Yeah, but because Christ has already come, he's coming back to rescue his saints those that he covers by his blood from judgment, from the wrath of God. And when he comes, my friends, you will not be punished for your sins. God will not punish sins again in you or me that have already been punished once and for all in Jesus Christ. He will not commit double jeopardy. Augustus Top Lady said it like this in a wonderful hymn, From whence this fear and unbelief, he asks, Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that load of sin that Lord was charged on thee? If thou my discharge hath procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. So return unto thy rest, O my soul. For the merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for me. My friends, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I hope that's your reaction to the message this morning. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
Yes, there is bad news ahead, but we know the good news, don't we? That frames every future anxiety in terms of a past victory, enabling the new covenant believer to face tomorrow in the blessed assurance of God's redeeming grace. What a glorious text this is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. May we look for him and desire and expect and anticipate the second coming of our blessed Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rock of ages, for me. Let me